0: it would be absolutely impossible this morning to miss the excitement in the lobby and down the hallway. I want to let you know that the... um I want to say finance team. They're hard at work as well. But the facilities team is also hard at work and have been planning for several weeks uh, to prepare what happened over the course of this week. I want to begin by thanking uh, Aaron Holder. And I want to have Aaron and the um, facilities team stand. If you were on the facilities team with Aaron, would you stand to be recognized? Hold your applause just for a second. There we've got the team in part. I think there's a few more. But now what I'd like you to do is, even if you're not on the facility team, if you helped at all this week, whether it was for an hour or more, many more hours, would you stand as well, to be record, right, Because there are many of you. All right. Would you give these folks a round of applause? All right. Thank you so much. And I, I want to have a special word of prayer uh, for Aaron and his team and the rest of the folks who have worked so hard. Uh, the job is not yet done. And if you had a chance to talk to Aaron, he has some great plans for other things as well. And so this is an exciting time in the life of our church family. I want to pray with them right now. Father, thank you for the way that you're uh, using these individuals. I thank you for uh, those who donated an hour or two of their time. and for several who uh, donated 40 or 50 or 60 or more hours over the course of this week. We thank you for their hard work and for their diligence and recognize that it was all for uh, the great honor and, and the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're, we're so grateful and look forward to all that you have in store for us here in our church family. Help us to be a a welcoming church, an inviting church, a loving church as people in this community come uh, through the front doors to uh, learn more about the Word of God, to make new friends, to learn what it means to glorify the great God of the universe. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the first things that children learn in this life is the importance of obeying. Amen? Amen. Particularly obedience to their parents. I can tell you that I learned from a very early age that obedience in my home was not something that was optional. Obedience was not negotiable. Obedience was absolutely essential and my assumption is that most of you, if not all of you, can relate to that and understand the importance of obedience. One of the critical lessons that we learn in the Christian life is the necessity, the imperative of obedience. I want to give you the truth point in advance this morning and then unpack it for you over the next several minutes. Here it is. It's very simple. The truth point is disciples... Obey Jesus. Disciples obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I realize that some of you, when you, when you see the truth point, the disciples obey the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll say, uh, tell me something new. I get it. I embrace it. I understand what the Word of God teaches. But you need to understand that this truth point is not without controversy. That there has been a war a that has been brewing, not only for the last, oh, roughly 30 years or so, but has even extended throughout church history over this point. Today we will see that the Lordship of Jesus Christ is at the very heart of saving faith. However, as I've already indicated, not everyone sees it this way. It was back in the late 80s when John MacArthur wrote a book. And in my humble estimation, it is one of the most important books that has been written over the last hundred years. It is a book that will no doubt be in print after we are all dead and gone. The name of that book is The Gospel According to Jesus. John MacArthur writes, Many influential voices in contemporary evangelicalism are preaching with great fervor that we should not tell unbelievers they must yield to Christ as Lord. His Lordship, they say, has nothing to do with the gospel. They make the preposterous allegation that calling the unsaved to surrender to Christ is tantamount to preaching salvation by works. Close quote. So this morning, I want to drive home the importance of obedience by having you open the Word of God, and I trust that you will be convinced with me this morning of the importance of obedience in the life of a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give you a road map as we begin. I want to give you some uh, really signs on the road as we move forward in the Christian life, and then we'll unpack those together. First, I want you to see the meaning of obedience, and we will labor over this point. I want you to understand in its finer details what the meaning of obedience is, and then we'll move on and look at a second road sign, and we'll call that road sign the mark of obedience. Finally, we will look at the mandate of obedience. So look first with me. I want to have you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5 as we begin to explore the meaning of obedience. The meaning of obedience. And what I would have you see this morning is that this is a rich concept. That as we learn about obedience in the pages of Scripture, we will see that there is a, a depth that flows throughout the Word of God. Now, there are several snapshots that you will see in Scripture which demonstrate the importance of this vital concept, namely the notion of obedience. And I want to begin by showing you a diagram. And in this diagram, I want to start, it might be a little hard to see, I want to start with the actual word, obedience. There is a word translated in Acts chapter 5 that we will look at in a moment, but translated as obey. And that is a Greek word that means this. It means to obey someone in authority. We would say it like this. Children obey their parents for they are in authority over their children. We would say on the streets that we are subject to police officers. That we submit to their authority. Kyle mentioned softball. We all recognize, whether we like the calls or not, that we on the softball field are subject to the authority of the umpire. We are, as people, subject to the authority of many people, most notably God. And so we begin with this New Testament concept, it's also an Old Testament concept, of obedience. Obedience. In first John chapter 5, verse 2, you don't need to turn there. We see another word that is translated obedience that says this by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. When we obey His commandments. Now, in the Old Testament, there are several scriptures that point to the idea of obedience. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, And if you indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And then of course in 1 Samuel 15 verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to the fat of rams. So we begin with this, this broad concept, this general notion of obedience. But there are other words that I want to I have you see around, around this general concept of obedience. And the next word is the word I like to call the S-word. The S-word. And we all know that word very well. It's the word that most Americans just love. It's the word Submission. Submission. Why are so many of you shaking your heads? <laughs> the dreaded S word. Submission. The word submission comes from a Greek word that is translated as follows. It means to be under control. It means to be obedient. And it's actually a military term that means to get in your proper rank. To get in your proper rank. And so in James chapter 4... Scripture says, "Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Get in your proper rank. God is the authority; He is the Creator; you are the creature." And then it goes on to say, "Resist the devil, and he will flee from you." I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He says it like this: When, when a buck private acts like a general, there's going to be trouble. Think about that for a minute. You have a private in the military who acts like a general. Well, if you act like a general, you will have problems submitting to the general. And Rearsby is exactly right. At that point, there will be trouble. The concept of submission. Move on to another word. Self-denial. Self-denial. The Greek word translated self-denial means a verbal renunciation. It means to repudiate something. It means to pay no attention to yourself. It means to deny yourself, which involves a radical renunciation. We looked at Luke chapter 9, verse 23 over a month ago. The Lord Jesus Christ said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Some of you enjoy from time to time reading in the New Living Translation. I like this translation. It says, if any one of you wants to be my follower, he must put aside his selfish ambition. Or from the Phillips paraphrase, if anyone wants to follow in my footsteps, he must give up all rights to himself. I think that's a good way to describe the idea of self-denial. Simply put, self denial involves a radical reordering of priorities and sacrificial decisions. In short, self denial involves obedience. Then look at the word that is a prominent word in the pages of the New Testament it's the word follow. The word follow. Here, this comes from a word that means to accompany as a follower. To accompany as a follower. It means literally to be a disciple. And so in Matthew 8, Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In Matthew 9, Jesus passed on and saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And Matthew rose and followed Jesus. In Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. In Luke chapter 9, to another he said, follow me. But this man responded, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And what's interesting, if we had the time to to unpack each of these verses, something very interesting emerges. That each of these verbs is written in the imperative mood. That is to say, when Jesus tells these individuals, follow me, he's not only giving an invitation, he's uttering forth a command. And this is a command that he gives us. We are called to follow him as his disciples. There's a final word I want you to look at. And if you were to to just guess this morning, you would imagine that submission and self-denial and to follow Jesus would entail obedience. But here's one that might be a little bit more difficult to discern. It's the word walk. The word walk. You'll remember in Genesis 5, there's an Old Testament saint by the name of Enoch. And I love this verse. It says, Enoch walked with God. He walked with God. And and then in the New Testament, we see that the word walk is once again a rich word that is an expression of deep and abiding obedience to God. And the best way to express this word walk is found in Galatians chapter 5, where we are told, we are instructed to to walk by the Spirit. The word means how we live, how we behave. And so Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Once again in Ephesians 4, Paul says, Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. My question for each of us this morning is this. Is do you have a passion to obey the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not asking, do you obey Him perfectly? I'm not asking, do you obey Him close to perfectly? I'm asking, do you merely have a desire to obey Jesus? Do you have a desire to submit to him? To submit to his authority? To deny yourself? To follow him? To to with Enoch, to walk with God? What does obedience to Jesus look like for you as a as a mother? What does obedience look like to you as a father, as a as a teenager, as a young person? What does obedience look like to you as a as a husband or a wife? Let me challenge you today and for the rest of this week to be asking yourself, what what does it look like? Oh God, what does it look like to obey you? The meaning of obedience. Now walk with me and look for a moment at the second road sign on our journey, and that is the the marks of obedience. And here we want to answer the question together. Exactly what does it look like? What's it look like to walk after the Lord with the Lord Jesus Christ? What's it look like to obey Him, to submit to Him, to follow Him, to be a person of self denial? Well, there are three important marks that emerge in Scripture. And I want to share them with you. The first is the disciples who obey glorify God. Disciples who obey glorify God. Isaiah forty three seven. Everyone who I called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You know, every person that is born into this world was created for a purpose. Every boy and every girl that is born into this world is created to glorify the living God. I want to show you a picture that... Most of you probably won't recognize the first of two pictures. The first picture I want to show you is a picture that Jeremy and I ran across when we were in Scotland. If look at that picture, this is a picture that we saw in a museum. And I remember standing there mesmerized by this picture. Because this is a man who I have a great deal of respect for. When I show you the second picture, many of you who are older... Will recognize this picture. Let's look at it. Who is this guy? Eric Little, the great Scottish runner. And if you know the story about Eric Little, and I would commend the movie to you, Chariots of Fire, he's a man who sought to glorify God with his life. And one of the things that marked his life is he refused to run on Sunday, he refused to run on the Sabbath. He said many things that are of great inspiration to me and I trust it will move you as well. He said, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. I want to ask you this morning, what has God gifted you to do? What has God? What has God? How has He stirring you up so that you can use your gifts, so that you can use your talents, so that you can use your time, so that you can use your treasures to glorify the Great God of the Universe? One of the things that we're wrestling with on the Finance Ministry Action Team is what we have phrased joyful obedience, joyful obedience in the area, most notably of giving. Now, I want to challenge you this morning that if, if you're not giving to the work of the ministry, God is calling you to give. This is one important aspect of obedience. And you will learn this. It is joyful obedience. Joyful obedience. This is one thing that Eric Little discovered. He said, obedience to God's will is the secret of spiritual knowledge and insight. He went on to say that many of us are missing something in life because we are after the second best. I put before you what I have found to be the best, the one who is worthy of all our devotion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Eric Little is a man who glorified his Savior, not only on the track, and he was an amazing runner, but he also glorified God as he spent the remainder of his days on the mission field and died on the mission field for the great namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first important mark of obedience is disciples who obey, you see, glorify God. The second mark of obedience is that This, disciples who obey bear much fruit. They bear much fruit. Fruit is a notion, and for some reason, I get this question a lot from people. Pastor, what is fruit? The definition is simply a deed or an activity. Fruit is good work to the glory of God. It's good work to the glory of God. There's an individual I respect a great deal. His name is Joe Thorne. Some of you may have read his book, Note to Self or Experiencing the Trinity. He's a younger pastor who pastors at Redeemer Fellowship in the Chicago area. Just a few days ago, he released this little book that will probably be on the Read It selection for the month of April. I'm enjoying it that much. It's called The Heart of the Church. And it's interesting that just this morning, as I was pouring through the pages of this book, I, I ran across a definition of fruit, what Joe Thorne calls good works. And here's his definition. Good works are acts of obedience that stem from faith and are aimed at God's glory. You see, God is calling each of us to have lives that are set apart for the glory of God. i want to have you turn with with me this morning to several scriptures. Let's go together to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, because I want to labor this point and ask us what is God calling us to when He calls us to lives that bear fruit for His honor and glory. Look first at 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. And it's interesting, we begin with the idea of obedience. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so God is calling us to live fruitful lives. He's calling us to live lives that are set apart unto God. Move over with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. And of course, as you're turning to Hebrews 11, you will recognize this as the great hall of faith chapter. This is a chapter that my grandmother, before she went to be with the Lord promise to give me $50 if I memorize this whole chapter. I still haven't done it, but when I do it, I'm calling her. (laughs) little too late, right? Here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we read, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God is not only calling us to live lives that are set apart unto God, but He's calling us to live lives that please God. In order to please God, we must live lives that are faith-filled. That is, we believe that He exists. That is, we believe in His promises. That is, we believe in His Word. That is, we refuse to doubt, as we will see in just a few moments, we refuse to doubt not only His person and His works, but also His promises as well. God is calling us to lives that are faithful lives. I'll go back, if you would, to First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. And these are some verses that we examined not too many weeks ago, but it bears repeating. First Peter 4, beginning in verse 10. As each has received a gift... This verse is telling us that we are called to live lives that serve God, that minister to the people of God and live lives to the great glory and honor of God. Let me say it this way, that there is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Believe it or not, that's controversial that there is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. But Jesus says in John fifteen eight that this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Number three, another mark of discipleship, and that is the disciples who obey cling to the truth of Scriptures. They cling to the truth of the Word of God. Let me ask, before we go into great detail on this point, are you a person this morning who is, is clinging to the Word of God? Or are you like some, especially in America, who like to pick and choose what you like? You pick out the easy stuff and you embrace it, but you cast aside the difficult doctrines. We are called to submit to Scripture. We are called as obedient disciples to to cling to every doctrine from A to Z. An example of someone who does not cling to the truth of Scripture, I want to take a moment and share with you. In 2007, a book was published that took the world by storm. The author who wrote this book actually wrote this book as a challenge from his wife, a sort of plea from his wife, and was to be a gift to his children. The book has since sold over 20 million copies. Those are big numbers. The name of this book is The Shack by Paul Young. Several reviewers, despite the 20 million copies, myself included, over the years, have expressed deep concern at many of the theological assertions that the author not only makes in The Shack, but in his other two books as well, Crossroads and Eve. Many would respond like this they would say, Calm down. It's just fiction. Pastor, you need to cool it. It's just a novel. These are not theological treatises. These are fiction works. And those well-intentioned arguments came to an abrupt halt about six days ago. Literally six days ago. All of those arguments, and I want to challenge you, if you have toyed with the notion that what emerges in the shack is just fiction, all of the arguments have been washed away as of six days ago with the release of Paul Young's new book, Lies We Believe About God. Within this book, Paul Young presents what he refers to as 28 lies that we believe about God in terms that are absolutely unmistakable. Once again, readers will no longer be able to sweep the theological statements in Young's previous novels under the carpet. His views concerning God in this book are set forth in plain and vivid terms, giving readers a better understanding of what was proposed originally in his book, books The Shack, Crossroads, and Eve. And this morning, I don't want to give an extended book review. You can study that on your own, and I'd be happy to talk with you more if you would like. But I do want to share with you three particular problems that surface in the book. And uh, these will absolutely shock you and horrify you. And I hope they shock you and horrify you. The first thing that emerges in his most recent book is a flawed view concerning God. Within the pages of this book, Paul Young promotes a compromised or what I like to call a soft view of God. And he maintains this, God is not sovereignly in control of all things. He says it like this, one of the lies, one of the 28 lies is God is not in control. Or rather, God is in control. He says that is a lie. To say that God controls things according to Young is a lie. Additionally, He presents a God, and I say little g-o-d, He presents a God who submits to people. Can you imagine that? God submitting to me, and God submitting to you. In this most recent book, the author maintains that the word control is not a part of God's vocabulary. God submits, writes Young, rather than controls and joins us in the resulting mess of relationship to participate in co-creating the possibility of life, even in the face of death. Secondly, we find in this book a fallacious view of humanity. Within the pages of this book, Mr. Young redefines sin. Very interestingly enough, he does not reject the idea of sin, He believes in sin, yet he redefines it. And interestingly enough, he acknowledges that sin involves missing the mark, which is one of the classic definitions of sin. But he adds, the mark is not perfect moral behavior. The mark, listen carefully, is the truth of your being. But he takes it one step further and he says, quote, and what does the truth of your being look like? Answer, God. God. That is his definition of sin. You are made in the image of God, Young says, and the truth of your being looks like God. Close quote. He peddles the idea that sinners are not separated from God. He cites Romans chapter 8, the verse that we read earlier or heard earlier, that nothing will separate us from the love of God. And if you recall in Romans chapter 8, the promise that nothing will separate us from the love of God is meant for whom? Believers! For God's elect! It is not meant for everyone! Finally, we see a faulty view of salvation in Young's book where he promotes the doctrine of universal reconciliation, what we know as universalism. Quote, The good news is not that Jesus opened up the possibility of salvation, And you have been invited to receive Jesus into your life. The gospel is that Jesus has already included you into his life, into his relationship with God the Father and the anointing of his Holy Spirit. God has acted decisively and universally for all humankind, close quote. All this is to say that Lies We Believe About God by Paul Young is an utter repudiation of the authority of God's Word. And in many ways, this book is like a breath of fresh air. That might sound very strange to your ears, but he has, he has shown what he's been communicating all these years in the shack and the crossroads and Eve. He actually lays the cards on the table. The lesson I want to drive home is this. Disciples of Jesus Christ cling to the truth of Scripture. We don't pick and choose what we like. We don't, we don't fabricate the image of God that matches us. We don't distort who God is like. Rather, we see what God is like in the pages of His Holy Word. So do you strive to glorify God with your life? Do you strive by God's grace to bear good fruit to the glory of God? And do you cling to the truth of Scripture with all your might? There's a third road sign I want to share with you briefly, and that is the mandate of obedience. We've seen the meaning of obedience, the marks of obedience. And I want to conclude with the mandate of obedience by asking a question. And this is a question that may be on your mind. And that is, is obedience required for salvation? And the answer is an interesting one. And I'll say it like this. Number one, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. That is, none of our works contribute to our salvation, including our obedience. One pastor says it like this Every false religion ever devised by mankind or by Satan is a religion of human merit. Biblical Christianity alone is the religion of divine accomplishment. Other religions say, Do this and do that. Christianity says, It is done. As Jesus said, it is finished. Would you look with me at Romans chapter 4? Romans chapter 4. In a beauty, beautiful display of gospel reality. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul the Apostle says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... Second, and importantly, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, but our faith is never alone. You say, I don't get it. Once again, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, but our faith is never alone. That is, if we are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ... If we are banking all our hope and future exclusively on Jesus, the result is our faith is never alone. That is, justifying grace will produce good fruit and good works to the glory of God. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 2? We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now that's an interesting verse because many of us know very well Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. that says, For by grace you have been saved, how? Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then Paul continues and says, But we are workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is, in eternity past. When was that? long time ago. Before creation, God ordained that His people, those who were numbered among the elect, would bear good fruit to the glory of God. Romans 8.30, when... Those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. As simply put, when God justifies us, when we are acquitted, when we are imputed with the righteousness of Jesus, precisely at that moment, the sanctifying work of the Spirit kicks in. This is what we're learning about in one of the Veritas classes, the doctrine of sanctification. What is my role in justification? Only one thing. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's my only role. I believe. And it's God who gives me the ability to believe. The, the gift of faith, Ephesians 2 says, is from the hand of God. Now when it comes to sanctification... We see this as a a responsible partnership between the sinner and the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And so obedience does not contribute to our salvation. It plays no role whatsoever in justification. But all those who are justified will bear fruit to the glory of God. John MacArthur adds, The current debate over the so-called lordship salvation must be careful to protect two borders. On the one hand, it is important to stress that true faith yields true fruit. On the other hand, it is vital to stress that only the only merit that saves is the merit of Jesus Christ, which is received by faith alone. The truth point, the vital point to take home today, is that disciples obey the Lord Jesus Christ. True faith obeys. And so I want to ask once again, are you obeying Jesus? Are you obeying Jesus? Are your priorities in order? Is your life bearing spiritual fruit? Is there a pattern that is progressively moving toward heaven, toward the celestial city? And my heart for you this morning is that you would discover the joy of walking with Jesus. And by definition, walking with Jesus means obeying Jesus, submitting to Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, being a person of self denial, following Jesus. That is, obeying Jesus is to experience unvarnished, unhindered joy on a daily basis. I want to show you a, a final photograph and ask this question, and that is, is there any proof? Is there any proof? of your discipleship. There's a famous question that has been posed over the years, and that is, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If someone broke into Christ's fellowship right now, if, if we became a, a police state in our country, and the police came, and they, they hauled you off to court, and they, 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 they stood you before a judge and said, Your Honor... This person is being accused of being a Christian. And the judge says, What is the evidence, counselor? Would there be enough evidence for you to be convicted of being a Christian? John the Apostle said, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Simply put, disciples obey Jesus. We don't do it perfectly. In fact, if we were all honest, we would all say, not even close to perfect. But the key question is, is this the desire of our hearts? Are we moving in the direction of the celestial city? Do we desire to submit to Jesus? And when in that moment we succumb to sin, when in that moment we succumb to temptation, do we immediately turn and face the cross and say, oh, oh, Jesus... I realize that you have saved me, but I, I, I am still a sinner and I need help. Will you forgive me? And we have that promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sin and to forgive us of, of all unrighteousness. Is that the essence of your Christian life? May our lives be a reflection of this great New Testament reality that we would desire to obey Lord Jesus Christ that if we indeed got hauled into a courtroom that the counselor would say let me tell you the 30 things about this individual this is why he should be accused of being a Christian let's pray Father thank you for the challenge of your word we think of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 who were thrown in jail who were miraculously uh, sprung from that jail as an angel of the Lord uh, delivered them. And then they went moments later to continue preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the religious officials came and said, what are you doing? Didn't we instruct you not to preach the word of God? And the response of the apostles is, we must obey God rather than men. May that be... On the fabric of our hearts. May it be written and etched on the fabric of our hearts that our desire is to obey you, God. That we would have a desire to submit, to be a people of self denial, that we would be a people who would, would would follow vigorously after the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would walk by the power of the Spirit. We recognize, God, that we are not saved by works but we are saved unto good works, that justifying grace produces good works and and spiritual fruit to the glory of God. So would you help us and be merciful and help us to be able to distinguish these categories, to protect the the free and the, the pure gospel of grace, and to also realize the importance of obedience. Oh God, I pray that you would grant this your people mercy. We are in the midst of exciting times here at Christ Fellowship. As we continue to move forward by your grace and for your glory. I ask God that you would strengthen us, that you would give us great resolve, that you would give us uh, new opportunities to share the gospel uh, here in our community, and that many people would hear, that many people would believe, many people would not only see Jesus, but they would savor Jesus, that the faith would be genuine and you would do great things in the days to come. Now, as we sing to conclude our service, may you... Receive the glory, and may your people receive encouragement during this time. In Jesus' name, amen.